I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast. Produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. In insurance and reinsurance, we hear a lot of talk about partnerships. But in truth, we know that many relationships are marriages of convenience, or indeed, opportunistic liaisons that are not designed to last. If I was a reinsurance buyer, I would like my reinsurer to be committed to supporting me in the long term, and someone who is unlikely to run away if I've had a bad year. I would like to be able to confide in them, and I'd really value it if they were perhaps even a little boring in their consistency. Javier San Basilio, the CEO of Mapfrey Re, is very much the embodiment of this old school of reinsurer. I really enjoyed spending time with someone able to give a calm and considered analysis of the state of the reinsurance market today, and I think you will too. Listen on for valuable insights and a sense of where Matt Frey-Ree's steadily increasing influence is likely to be felt in the run-up to 1-1 and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Javier, thank you so much for coming on The Voice of Insurance. Why don't we just start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and about your insurance and reinsurance career so far? By all means, thank you very much for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to have a chat. If we can't do it in person as we used to in the old days, this is a very good way to do it. And in terms of what's my background and what's my insurance and reinsurance history, it's a very simple one on one end because I've always been with one group. And it's a fairly complex one because I've been in many different locations. I mean, I joined Mafre in 1992 in the headquarters in Madrid. I did a bit of assisting on the retro side of the company and handling also the business coming from the Mafre group companies, so our sister companies. Then I switched to underwriting and moved to Manila, where I spent four years covering the Far East markets. From there, I went to London, still on underwriting uh, for a couple more years. And from London, I came back to Madrid again, did a bit more of underwriting and moved to our operations in New Jersey in the States, where we spent five years or so. From there, I came back to Madrid again, 
I took a shift and moved to Mafra International, which is the direct insurance international holdings for the group. So our investments in insurance companies other than in Latin America. And I spent a couple of years there. From then, I went back to London, where I spent 11 years. Eight of those years were purely dedicated to our London branch, which covers a very wide spectrum of businesses and markets. And then I took over the responsibility for the European region from London, and I moved back to Madrid a year ago and took over the position of Chief Underwriting Officer in Mafreria in January 2021. Wow, that's an amazing career. So it turns out we both started in insurance and reinsurance in the same year, but I think you look much better on it than I do. <laughs> Being a journalist, I think, is, yeah, it takes its toll, but obviously I was an insurance broker. <laughs> so you must have seen lots of markets come and go hard and soft. What's your assessment of the current level of rate adequacy or inadequacy in the market at the moment? It's true what you say. I mean, we both joined the industry in the year of Andrew. So that was a real hardening moment in the industry. So we've seen real hard markets. And I don't think we are in a hard market or we have been in a hard market in the past few years. We've been in a very, very soft market for a good number of years. And we've seen some positive trends in the past couple of years particularly in some areas of business, especially large corporate complex industrial risks. But we're still seeing many areas of the market, many prices were very soft, very low, especially when one consider that claims history is, is not getting any easier. We're seeing a lot of secondary perils coming into play. I'm not too happy with the rate of the The movement has been positive in the past couple of years, but has it been enough? I don't think so. But still, this is a work in progress. So within that, obviously, it's a big world and some places are more adequate than others. Yeah. Are there any particular places that you're happiest to deploy your capital now? We've seen a huge rate increases and we'll probably talk about this later on. In large industrial complex risks, probably the reduction of capacity from Lloyd's played a big role there. But in big personal lines markets, we haven't seen that much. In terms of deploying capital for us, I mean, we are, as you know, in Mafreria, a very, very long-term viewed, uh, focused company. We try to build relationships over a long period of time. We are not opportunistic by definition. I mean, we, we try to be stable. And because of our size, I mean, we're in a position where we're not particularly overexposed anywhere in the world. So we can still find uh, growth opportunities in many markets. Of course, there have been a lot of claims activities in the past few years or in the past months, and we expect some reactions. Our industry overall in the past five years prior to 2021 has been over 100 on the combined ratios on the non-life side. It's true that the first half of 2021 has been positive with a combined ratio for the market of around 95.1 or something like that. But the third quarter has been very active. How the markets react after that? will also have an impact on how we deploy our capacity. In terms of specifically where we're going to deploy it, you will have to allow me to keep our cards close to our chest for the time being, and you will see it after renewals probably. But I mean, we're not shifting radically because that is not in our nature and that is not how we build relationships. But we think there are opportunities in almost every region. There are some areas of the market where we're not very present consciously. There are some areas and some lines of business where we haven't been active and we don't anticipate jumping into them right now. But in the markets where we're active, we think that we have opportunities almost everywhere. It's your job 
as an underwriter to never be quite happy with whatever rate you're getting. Yeah. But despite that, you've had some significant growth in the first half. Yeah. 16% if I've done my maths correctly. How much of that is the economy recovering and exposure units coming back after COVID? And how much of that is genuine price rises? Well, there's a bit of everything into that growth. I mean, that 16% includes both group business and non-group business. You know that we are the reinsurer for the Mafra group. And in that side of the company, where it's a specialized uh, Chinese world and everything, we grow as much as Mafra wants us to grow or needs us to grow. But we've also grown in the open market business. The 16%, which is a little bit less on the non-Mafra group business, but it's still a substantial growth. I think we've seen in many of our friendly competitors in this year, this growth comes from a mix of great exposure increase, probably 70% price increase. You have to remember also that the business we saw in our books in the first half of 2021, in many cases was written in 2020, where the price increases were stiffer than in 2021. Among other things, we had huge price increases in the Japanese market in 2020, when we saw probably one of the CAD portfolios, over 35% growth on the Japanese books. And that has been flowing into the books in 2021. We have also grown in 2021 in terms of written premium, but not as much as we did in 2020. But again, when we discuss about how much of that growth was pure price and how much was exposure, I would say that it was probably 70% price and around 30% exposure, roughly. So it's pretty good. Yeah. The anecdotal evidence, obviously, Q3 apart and whatever happens with various hurricanes and how they develop. Anecdotally, though, the rate momentum seems to be slowing down. Is that right overall, your feeling for 2021 versus 2020, certainly? Yes. And as I mentioned before, I think the price momentum has softened a bit in 2021. And we've seen it every quarter gradually. I mean, nothing too dramatic, but gradually slowing down. And probably what we've seen in this third quarter of 2021 is going to have an impact on, on that momentum going down and probably will shift it and harden the markets again. Because also the claims activity has been focused in, in very relevant markets. I mean, we've had substantial claims in continental Europe. We're going to have a reasonable, I don't know how substantial, because as you say, either has just landed claims in the US. During the year, we've had Secondary perils affecting many markets with relatively important claims. In Spain, for example, we had a Philomena in, in January, if you remember, a big snowstorm that is one of the biggest insurance losses in the market in recent years. In many other markets, we've seen an increase of medium-sized cuts and non-model secondary perils that are having an impact. And I think as an industry, we can't allow the pricing momentum to slow down even further. I think 1-1 is going to be a, a challenge in terms of pricing because we're not going to have a definite figures for, for many areas, but I think it's not going to get any softer. In some niches, there might be some, rather than softening, because I don't see prices going down in general, there might be some markets where prices are not going to harden radically, but in many markets, we're going to see substantial price increases, I think, because there's been substantial claims activities. So a little bit more to come. Over this overall period of hardening that we've been having over the last couple of years, and this maybe we'd call it a correction or whatever, and of course, you as Mapfrey, with your close relationship with your parent being the in-house reinsurer for Mapfrey, you've seen this at first hand. People have been saying that 
this harder market has been driven more by insurance companies. Hmm. You know, in previous hard markets, reinsurers have been the ones that have been a lack of capacity or have been withdrawals or total withdrawals or closures of reinsurers. And that's driven pricing. This time, it seems to have been insurers deciding that they must make a market correction and that reinsurers have just been benefiting on the back of that, and in particular with their proportional relationships. Is that correct for you? Do you agree with that assessment to say it's been more of an insurance thing than a reinsurance thing? Yes, I think you're right, Mark. I think insurance companies have been a bit more active on pushing prices high, especially, again, as I mentioned before, in some pockets of the market, particularly large industrial risks have been seeing the biggest price increases in the past couple of years. Large multinational programs have been under a lot of pressure in terms of pricing. The business written by uh, companies like Mafra Global Risk or similar companies have had the highest price increases. And that has, in some cases, not fully trickled down down to the reinsurance companies. You know, if you are participating on the proportional programs, of course, you would enjoy the benefit of those prices going up. You know that in Mafra Re, we are a very large writer of proportional business, so we've enjoyed that market cycle somehow, but still, it's been more of a sedent move and it's been more of a sedent benefit, which is good. I think from the reinsurance side, we've been asking them to increase prices in those lines of business for many years because we thought that the price was not enough, was not sufficient, and they've done it, and rightly so. So it's been driven directly by insurance companies, by sedents with the support and the counseling, if you wish, from reinsurance companies. We've seen not complete withdrawals from the market, as you said, as we saw in other cycles, but we've seen certainly reductions in capacity on the reinsurance side, particularly for those complex lines of business. The tightening of the ropes around Lloyd's activity also had an impact on that. The review of business plans and capacities allowed by the Lloyd's franchise board in the past few years and how they needed to react to the bad results that they were having in some lines of business had an impact on that because there was a lot of international capacity not being deployed in some markets and that increased the pressure on pricing. But it was definitely more a sedent move, as you said, but we approved, we say, and, and we benefited, and particularly in our case because of the proportional business right. So, yeah, I imagine it has been very gratifying or very nice for a business like yours where you're picking partners and trying to build really long-term relationships, picking partners, hopefully, that are going to outgrow the markets that they're in and be more profitable than their peers, I presume. It must make you very happy. They're doing the work for you and it suits your strategy, I presume. It does indeed. I mean, that is also why we're always so focused on... First, I mean, we're underwriters and we underwrite each piece of business that will get into the books. But we very much underwrite the client as a whole. The sedent company is very important for us, more important in some cases than a particular individual transaction. And when we deploy our capital with a particular customer, we try to stick with them and with the faith that they will give us a good business and a good relationship overall. And we've seen that many of our partners have overachieved, if we can say, in this market. Some have had bad luck so, or bad underwriting decisions and have had some losses, but that is part of the business. That is only natural. But in the majority of the cases, we're very happy with the way they have developed. Moving to the other end of the market, something that is perhaps more opportunistic because the buyers are very sophisticated and the sellers are equally sophisticated, is the retro end of the market. Of course, Matt Ferrari is a big buyer of retro understandably so. Yeah. 
So what's your current attitude to that market looking forward to the next renewal? Is it more or less or stay the same? I think when I last spoke to Matt Frey on, on this program, you said you had quite a stable relationship with your retro and you, yeah. you very deliberately maintained a stable relationship with retro. Is, is that still the case? Yes, it is indeed, Mark. We are in many respects a very boring company. And I think being boring in our industry is good news because the industry in itself brings a bit too much excitement. So a bit of boredom is not bad. And we are very, very stable on our retro purchasing and we're very long-term oriented. We do not anticipate major changes for this renewal. But it's also worth noting that this long-term view of our retro purchase has also benefited our retrocessioners. And, and over time, they've made fairly good business with us. But we have a very, very solid panel of partners uh, backing us on the reinsurance side. We will, of course, adjust our purchase a little bit here and there according to market cycle. And this can have an impact in our final purchases any given year, not particularly this one, but any given year. But overall, we are consciously managing the volatility we bring to the MAFRA group. I mean, we are also very conscious that we belong to an insurance group and reinsurance is a volatile activity by nature, but we have to avoid excess volatility. And, and that is why our retro purchase is probably bigger in many areas than the competitors and is definitely more stable. We're not opportunistic in purchasing retro and we will, of course, manage the cycle, but our long-term strategy is unchanged. Good. You mentioned before about the start of our careers and Hurricane Andrew, and that was the first time that we saw a big capital formation. It wasn't the first capital formation on Bermuda, but it was the first time you almost had this mass flowering of new capacity, you know, the class of 1993. And I remember the first time sending faxes to all these new companies, you know, Mid-Ocean and all these places that just appeared out of nowhere, mm -hmm. 10 or 11 or 12. We've had a new flowering of capital formation, the class of 2020. Do you think they've made any impact on the reinsurance market? Well, probably in some specialty areas, they've been more active. We haven't seen them that much. I mean, the deployment of capital was probably a bit late in the year to see the effectiveness on the markets. And there was not enough distress market, probably, to have a substantial impact, at least in the more traditional areas where we tend to be more active. I mean, we, of course, saw them around but we didn't see them too much in the business we write. So did you say they're probably welcome then? Yeah. So, you know, just being complimentary and filling in gaps? People will not be deploying billions of dollars of capital for no reason. So if they come, it's, it's because there's a reason for them to come and, and there's probably a void for them to fill. But again, it's probably more focused on specialty lines and some areas where we're not too active. But anything that brings health to our market is good for us. Well, another void to fill is the sort of information void about COVID. If we were having this conversation this time last year, we'd have been saying it's far too early to tell. Mm -hmm. And I suppose going into last year's 1-1 renewals, particularly as often happens in the insurance and reinsurance industry when there's a big uncertainty, sometimes you just say you agree to leave it till next year or till yeah. some future date to say we, we won't take it into consideration right now. For me, that was the feeling I got about 1-1 last year, that it was a We'll park this COVID issue until we have more information. What do you think now that we're, you know, a year later, what's happening with the COVID position and how are those discussions going to come into focus? And also, are there any disputes, do you think, that, that are likely to happen? As you mentioned, I mean, last year was very early. I mean, and, and COVID showed very, very clearly some gaps in the alignment of coverages and exclusions, or at least in the understanding of coverages and exclusions 
and aggregation clauses and understanding of the work of these kinds of peril in our industry. In general, and I don't think we were alone, many of us thought that there was a systemic risk not to be borne by the insurance industry. But again, this understanding was not 100% there. And some people had different views. Some markets, some countries in particular, had different views. And we've been discussing around COVID for a year now. This was something that, as you mentioned, was parked to the side when renewing 1-1. Some of the disputes, even though the majority of countries' incidents are very clearly not affected by COVID claims overall, especially on the non-life side, but some of the areas where we've seen disputes are still being discussed. I mean, things have clearly progressed uh, from last year, and we can face renewals with a bit more certainty, at least. Um, we know that figures and positions are not 100% clear. Many of the discussions are still open, be it based on, on coverage or aggregation issues or on amounts. And there are also some cases, and unsubstantial ones, where we haven't even started discussing about amounts. I mean, we've seen some large programs with precautionary losses and preliminary advices, but without having the certainty of the figures behind them. Are we in a better position than last year? Definitely we are. Are we 100% clear? I'm afraid we're not 100% clear. We don't have yet a clear view of what the final impact of it is going to be in our industry, but we're definitely in a better position. And if we were able to renew the great majority of the business last year with all the uncertainties around it, I don't think we'll have any problems in renewing the portfolio. And, and I think both citizens and reinsurers have the understanding that this is an issue that is not going to be resolved in one year. And it will have an impact in the industry, both in terms of coverages and in terms of prices for many years to come. So going forward, we presume that COVID is very much out of the picture, at least with all new business and all business from last year anyway. But it's, so it's just resolving the issue around the original coverage. Yes, yes. I think one thing that COVID brought to the industry is certainty and clarity. I think there was a lot of effort in defining new exclusionary language or inclusionary language in insurance policies and reinsurance treaties. And I think that's a welcome outcome. And we'll see how it goes from here. But still, we have to determine what was the impact on the business we wrote before and, and how we settled that. And we will see how it evolves. We're definitely in a much better situation than the previous year, despite the severe impact that it has had economically and socially and in the way we do business. I mean, other than because of COVID, we would probably be doing this conversation over a cup of coffee face-to-face. -face. Yep. And in terms of the reserving, is it standing up? I presume you put up some very precautionary reserves to start with, and it seems that mostly they're holding up. Well, they're holding up. I mean, there's probably still more strengthening to come overall in the industry. In our case, I think we're fairly all right. But in the industry, I think there will be still more strengthening to come because things are evolving and situations are changing. We've seen some development, particularly on the life side in, in some regions like Latin America, with limited impact so far on the reinsurance side. It's, it's more an insurance matter than a reinsurance matter for the time being. But the number of countries that have been affected is still limited in terms of affected on the insurance and reinsurance side. On the social and personal side, has been worldwide. How drastically, I don't know. I think it's, it's probably fairly close to final outcomes already. Given that we're having the price increases, it'll be the sort of thing that we can work through quarter by quarter and it won't yeah. be a big problem. Yeah, quarter by quarter and, and year by year. I think it'll take a while to settle, but yes, it'll filter down through it. I mean, 
as long as we as an industry, both on the insurance side and on the reinsurance side, remember what has happened and, and, and keep the discipline, both on the exclusionary language and on the pricing, I think we will be able to absorb the impact over time. Yeah. Talking about reserve adequacy, before COVID struck all of us and changed the subject for many people, we were, as an industry, and rightly so, at the end of a very long, probably the longest soft market that any of us have known in our careers, rightly worried about reserving adequacy, because mm-hmm. we know that it's always been a problem in any market turn and market hardening when we discover the sins of the past, or as Warren Buffett would say, you know, who's been swimming naked. Yeah. The world is slowly getting back to more normal. What's your sense of that potential deficit in overall reserving across the industry? Do we think there's still more to come in terms of reserve strengthening for some players? This is in a general sense and excluding COVID. Well, excluding COVID, as you say, Mark, I think this is something that affects particularly people with large casualty books, which is not our case. As you know, we've never been a big writer of casualty lines, particularly heavy casualty or US casualty for that matter. People with these kind of books enjoy the cycle and had some substantial redundant reserves, or at least apparently redundant at the time, and benefited from the release of those reserves over a period of time. But that trend has been changing in the past two or three years. And, and we've seen reserve releases not being as substantial as before. And we've seen casualty lines particularly getting tougher and tougher. And where we saw reserves that were apparently redundant in the past five years, let's say, in some cases, they don't seem to be enough these days. As long as this is not something too dramatic that brings people to the knees, and as long as it shows, as you said, and as Warren Buffett said, who's been swimming naked, and that brings a bit more discipline from the underwriting side and the pricing side in the industry, then it's not too bad an outcome for us particularly. Maybe some people will suffer a bit more on on that side because their swimming costumes were a bit too tight, but ours were, I think, were big enough. So I think if if it brings a bit more discipline, it's not too bad for the market, really. Does it make you reassess your relationship with casualty? Now that a casualty is presumably more attractive, the casualty you can write today in 2021. You're probably right in saying that casualty might be a bit more attractive now because prices are hardening. But prices have hardened for a reason, particularly this kind of heavy casualty books, and especially as, again, US, are something that we're not too keen on getting involved with. I mean, we write some casualty lines, we write motor liability in many markets, and in some other markets we have all lines of casualty, but in some of the largest markets like the UK or the US on the casualty sites, we will probably still be looking at them with a lot of care. I don't think we're going to change for the time being. We don't know if the pricing is enough yet. How the inflationary trends seen worldwide are going to affect those lines is also something to be seen. Is inflation going to stay here with us or not? They were publishing the inflation for the year in Spain and it's been 3.3%, which is unheard of in the past 10 years. So I think we're going to still be very careful about casualty. Okay. so. You're going to stay relatively, I wouldn't say, uh, you said the word boring, but you're going to stay stable. You're not. You're, We're not you're, the same of being boring, Mark. We, we love being boring, really. 
but you're going to stay true to character and anything you do is going to be incremental not some big revolution to say we're going to be Matt Frey casualty making a big play for US casualty not that no I don't anticipate that happening not really okay well I'm going to change the subject something else that's been happening of course in the last four or five years with Matt Frey as a group has also been quite heavily involved in is the insurtech phenomenon, this huge investment that we've made Mm -hmm. as an industry in technology and attracting all sorts of interesting new people who would never have worked in insurance before into a new sector. And in the last six months, the first wave of that insurtech investment seems to have started to mature with some US businesses going public. I just want to ask you in general, what you think we've learned from that, that large, almost like a new kind of cultural flowering we've had in the insurance world? For us in MAFRE as a group, not only in MAFRE, we've been very active in MAFRE, but in MAFRE as a group, we've always been very much involved in innovative solutions and trying to improve the way in which we transact business with our clients and apply these innovations to insurance problems. We've been having probably the most advanced research facilities for car repairability in Spain and some would say in Europe for many years. And that has had a direct impact in our insurance results in Spain. We've had in the past, closer to the phenomenon you were mentioning, we've had in the past five years or so, very clear innovation initiatives at the group level. And we've been deploying capital in some firms where we saw potential. We've been creating facilities for new people to the industry to come and show us what they think we could be doing in our industry. And we've seen some fantastic ideas, some way too complex and probably too far away from insurance realities and insurance problems. I think at the end, what we try to do now is focus really on insurance and insurance problems. I mean, we're not able to design or to invent the new iPhone, but we definitely want to improve the way in which insurance is transacted, how we solve insurance problems, how we provide better client service with innovative tools. I mean, the tools available to us or to anyone in our industry are much, much better, much easier to use to the final user and probably much more complex to design for the companies themselves, but we're still very active and we will keep on investing on this side, focusing again on what we do is is trying to solve the insurance problems of our clients. And from the reinsurance side, we've supported and we will keep on supporting some innovative initiatives in different markets. We've seen, of course, the very well-known initiatives in markets like Israel, which has been extremely active some markets in Europe, some markets in the States. When it comes to valuations and market valuations of some of the insurtechs that have come to the market in the past few months, there are some very, very large valuations there. And is the market the one who has to make sense of those figures? In some cases, that might seem a bit too optimistic, but when so many clever people put so much money into a project, there's got to be something behind it. So we always keep a very, very open mentality towards innovation and it's in our DNA, really. As a CEO, with this now maturing phase and you know all these insurtech pin-up companies now having to produce quarterly results and having a lot mm-hmm. more focus on their actual financial performance, yeah. do you think now with that maturing phase, there is going to be more of a focus on profitability for those businesses? Of course, there's a kind of culture clash between insurance and technology, whereas the technology model was to go and conquer the whole world and then you get profits, yeah. maybe in year 10. Whereas insurance, you know, traditionally 
by the end of year three, we want to see those startup costs kind of working the way through and the expense ratio coming right down and underwriting profitability being there. How are we going to resolve that? I think there has to be a trade-off on both sides. And I think if, as you say, the technology mentality looks 10 years ahead and insurance mentality looks only maximum three years. And if you're not profitable in three years, you're closed. I think we'll have to have uh, something in between because you cannot change the reality in three years in our industry, really. But of course, you cannot be losing money for 15 years and want to keep on having support. I think in some areas, it's easier to see the influx of these more technology-driven initiatives, and we will see changes. But again, now that they are in the stock exchange and they have to provide, as you say, quarterly returns, it's not only a nice business plan in a PowerPoint. Now it's real money and real pounds and dollars and euros, and that has to have an effect on the business they do. Something else that's been running in parallel to InsureTech, and I suppose it is part of InsureTech, has been a development in algorithmic or automatic trading. Yeah. How do you see that developing in the reinsurance market? And has Matfrey been getting involved in some of this? We've seen, obviously, we've seen a syndicate at Lloyd's. I'm sure you've been following this with a lot of interest. Yes. It's a fascinating initiative, really. But it's a fascinating initiative because it's too big a shift, probably, from what we understand as being the reinsurance business and the underwriting of reinsurance business. We are extremely keen in using automatic trading facilities, if you wish, on the pre-underwriting and in the post-underwriting. So in standardizing information exchanges, in processes, in streamlining processes, and much as I loved and, and had fun with the brokers in London going around and, and having a chat and having a coffee or a beer if the time was late enough, there are things that we need to change in our industry and use the technology for those purposes. However, going from there into transacting reinsurance underwriting fully based on an algorithm is something that we're not too keen on. I mean, the use of complex systems to enhance our analysis, to give us a better view of the risk we're writing, that is more than welcome. And we've done it. We keep on doing it and we will keep on doing it in the future. On the other side, again, facilitating the way we transact business and participating in industry-wide initiatives to automatize transactions is something we very much welcome. And we've been participating in many of those initiatives. But for us, delegating our underwriting authority in a computer is something we're probably not ready to do right now. I mean, we understand reinsurance underwriting as, as being something not only very complex, but very, very tailor-made and very individual to each client and to each client's needs. And we very much value the relationship we have with those clients. And the way we get to know those clients and to understand these clients is something that I, I'm not so sure we can do with an automatic trading facility. I mean, for mass personal lines, insurance, underwriting, motor insurance, home insurance, small life insurance uh, transactions. I can see that for insurance, it's too far away from us, probably. And I suppose an algorithm by nature has to be opportunistic because it simply just adds up numbers and says this one is better than that one. I mean, it has a place in the industry, probably. But for a company, again, like Mafferi, where we had 19 offices around the world, and we had these offices because we want to be close to the client and we want to understand the client. I don't want our guy in Santiago de Chile, for example, to go to a client which they've been doing business for 25 years together and tell them, look, I'm very sorry, mate, but the algorithm says 
you're off. <laughs> and that's it. And there's no way out. I mean, that is not the way we transact business. And as long as it helps us in understanding the risk, we will use all the technology we can. But we don't want technology to replace the underwriters. So I suppose your vision of the underwriter, Matt Frey, re-underwriter of the future, do you see technology enhancing the productivity and at least saying to the underwriter, here are the top five risks that we've been shown today that I think within our appetite you should look at first. Yeah. Would you agree that that's probably a good way of starting? Yeah, yeah, that, that is a very good way. I mean, and, and for the technology to also help us tell our clients why we think they should be doing things in a different way, why they should shift their portfolio in a given way, or why we need to have a better remuneration for the capacity we're deploying with them to assist us in making a better underwriting decision and to assist us in explaining to our partners why things need to be done in a particular way, by all means. Then hopefully, I suppose they'll see that you're adding value if you're saying, hey, I think you should try and sublimit this in your coverages because mm -hmm. the limit's too big. Have you not noticed the loss trends? And mm -hmm. you can pick up on these things so much quicker these days. Is that what it's all about for you? For us, that is a very important service we can provide to our clients. I mean, I mean, it's not only providing capacity for a price, it's also telling them where we think they should be going. With due respect, because at the end, <laughs> the seed and companies are the ones who know the business best, but it's all the technology we can apply to our processes to automatize them, as you say, is fantastic. And let the underwriters focus on underwriting and analyzing the meaning of the business and how can we have a better business? That is great for us. In order to be able to do that, I suppose everyone needs to have that data flowing through systems. I mean, yes. how far do you think we're along the line of you getting all the data you really, really want? Obviously, as a reinsurer, you know, historically, you haven't had all the data. You never have all the data you want. Or if you do, you have it in such a format that's impossible to input. We would always complain that we never have enough data or the data is not in good enough shape. But we both remember, Mark, what kind of data we used to have in the 90s. And, and that was absolutely nothing. And especially nothing homogeneous. One company will report on one basis and the other company will report, if anything, on a completely different basis. Now, at least we have some market standards and we have the ability to handle data in a much, much better way than we did in the past. This is only going to increase. I mean, this is not going to get easier, but it's going to get much better analysis and a much better result of, of the analysis. I mean, having the ability to properly analyze data is going to be crucial. So I suppose in the future, you're going to have a deeper and stronger relationship, hopefully, with those students because they trust you with all their data as well. Yes, of course. And again, that is in the spirit of partnership. And as, as we mentioned, in proportional business, is even more so than on an excess of loss treaty. And that is in our nature. Well, Javier, I've really, really enjoyed meeting you and discovering that we have a parallel but divergent <laughs> career path. I just wish you all the best navigating the rest of 2021 and going into the next renewals. And I hope that you'll book some time to come and speak to us probably next year Yes, and update us on all your progress. But good luck with everything. Thank you so much for giving the time. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium, 
where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.